ready to, it's like Nixon. I'm not a crook. All right, how are you guys doing today? I hope everyone online is having a good day. Unfortunately, I don't have Facebook in front of me. No internet on my phone. But we're going to keep going in Matthew 24 and talking eschatology in Matthew 24. Um, specifically, we're going to be starting in verse 36. But before we do, let's just say a quick prayer. Get us started on the right foot. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your holy word. We thank you that we get to study it in a group like this, that we have the freedoms that we do in America. Please reveal the hidden truths um, in your scriptures. Make it convict our hearts. God, as we go about our days, may we always have your word on our tongues. Uh, and I pray that we're a light to the rest of the world because of it. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so I hope you guys watched the previous couple of uh, Bible studies. They were very good. Today we're going to be, hopefully, God willing, finishing out chapter 24 of Matthew. And this is a very, very rich text. Howdy. So we could probably spend days on it, but alas, we're limited to about an hour. Uh, we're going to flip open right to verse 36, but before we start there, going to back up one verse and go over uh, a little bit of what was talked about last time, just so we set the stage right. So verse 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we're, we're talking about Jesus, and remember, there's no section headings, chapter verses in these books in the original form. So we kind of have to take it as one continuous thought. So we're still talking about the end times. We're going from parable to parable. Last time it was the lesson of the fig tree. This time we're getting into a couple other parables. Um, and it's Jesus talking still. So we're going to go right to verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is a really controversial verse, actually. It's such a small verse, but it packs so much into it. So... Let's start off right at the beginning. Um, no one knows the day or the hour. We can immediately just say, <laughs> no one knows the time. We don't need to think, okay, well, day or, or hour, that means that we can know the, the month or the year. It's like, no, stop. <laughs> don't, don't go there. Uh, the idea that uh, Jesus is trying to express is that we can't know the time, period. Um, we can't anticipate it. So all those people that you see online trying to guess and you know, prophesy when the second coming is, you, can, you don't even need to click play on that little video. Know that they're, they're lying. <clears throat> no one knows. Um, in fact, if we want to get haughty about it and, and try to like figure it out, we're admonished not to in Acts 1.7. It says, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for us to know. So it's not in our realm. There's this idea of like the revealed God and the hidden God. And um, I'm, I'm big into Lutheranism. So Luther was always like, well, you shouldn't try to figure out the hidden God. He's hidden for a reason. He wants to be obscure. So this is one of those areas in which God is hidden. But um, I do think that we can take the scripture at its word here in the second part of this, where it's talking about how even Jesus, the son, doesn't know the day or the hour. Um, 
like Rabbi Lauren likes to say, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Um, so I hold that Jesus didn't know and doesn't know currently the day of his return, the day that the Father has set. Um, that day, by the way, is called the parousia. Um, that's just a fancy term for Jesus' second coming. And I think it's good to take the scriptures at its word. We know that Jesus is omniscient, so he knows everything. So it's kind of a, a quandary, like how do you get around that? Well, there's, I think, a very sneaky way, but it, it does solve the riddle. Jesus has both functions and a nature. So he has his divine nature, which is the same in all three parts of the Trinity, but they each have their own different functions. Specifically here, Jesus, you know, his essential properties are immutable. So that omniscience, it's not going to change throughout time. But he can change the expression of that omniscience and, and how it's um, manifested. Um, a good analogy, I think, is I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm a nurse. So I'm, I wear all these different hats. When I'm interacting with a patient, I don't talk to them like they're my son. Right? I'm a father, but I'm limiting that function of my nature in that encounter. So in the same way, I think Jesus, this is part of his humiliation, humiliation and incarnation, as part of his humiliation, he was limiting or self-restricting his um, expression of his omniscience. Um, either that or it was the father who was doing that. I don't want to get too much into Trinitar or social Trinitarianism, but I think that's how it's working here. You see the same sort of thing happening in the other members of the Trinity. We know they all share the same nature, one being three persons, right? So they all are working with the same materials, but it's the Holy Spirit that helps us in our prayer life. That's his function. And then it's the Father who is overseeing things, almost in like an authoritative way, um, I don't want to get too much down that rabbit hole. And then the Son is the one through whom the universe was created. So they all have their different roles, even though they share the same um, nature. All right, so uh, I want to go back to this text here, though, knowing about the day and the time. It's part of his humiliation. Uh, we can still know that Jesus is omniscient. Uh, another example of this, uh, him limiting himself while he's on earth, would be when he was carrying the cross and dying for our sins. He was still struggling under the weight of that cross. That much is clear. Is he really omnipotent? Is he all-powerful? Can't he carry a cross? Well, no. He was limiting that in that instance. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, talks about this with regard to Jesus being tempted. God cannot sin. How can he be tempted to sin? Well, it's part of him adopting that human nature. Uh, I've got a great quote here, and I, I stole it from D.A. Carson, um, his book on Matthew. It's his commentary. And it says, If the Son himself does not know the time of the parousia, second coming, how cheerfully should we, his followers, rest in ignorance, resting in ignorance, that cannot be removed, trusting in all things to our Heavenly Father's wisdom and goodness, striving to obey his clearly revealed will, remember the hidden and and revealed, the, the revealed will, and leaning on his goodness for support. I love that, because that's a great picture of faith, 
is sometimes you don't have the answer, but you can trust the scriptures and trust that the Father knows when the second coming is going to happen. Um, an interesting side note from this verse, and we're still in just the first verse of this uh, Bible study, is it's about angels. So it, it says, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son know. So the angels presumably know more than we do on these things. They have greater insights into this. So we don't want to downplay the um, significance of angels or how much they know. All right, but we should move on. Um, let's read verse 37. For as it were uh, the day, in the days of Noah, so will it be, uh, or sorry, so for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And this is, I think, a good, what I call a linchpin verse. Um, that's a verse that I think the rest of the section, the rest of the passage, kind of hinges on. So after almost every other verse in this section, in this parable of sorts, analogy, we can almost refer back to this verse, that he's likening it to the days of Noah. And so it's, an, it's a metaphor, and it's an extended metaphor because it keeps going. And we're, we're going we're gonna to be referring back to it. Um, verse 38, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Uh, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we're told explicitly how it's like the days of Noah. In the first part of that um, description there, they were drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, a.k.a. life as usual. Things were happening as they usually did. It was all fine and dandy until that moment when the rain came, when the flood came. The other part about this is I think it's a picture of sin, right? Uh, marrying, being given in marriage, just as in the days of Noah, what well, we know what was, happening in the, what was happening in the days of Noah. And it was sexual immorality, which is a pretty good standard. It's like a litmus test for the morality of a nation. If they fall into sexual immorality, you can be pretty sure they're failing in other areas. It's like a very deep-seated sin where if it's in a person or in a nation, it carries with it a multitude of other sins. That's just the, the theme I get from the scriptures and from personal experience. It just corrupts to the core. I think partly because it's bodily. You know, our, our spirit and our flesh, they're so closely intertwined. Um, so I think this is how it's going to be in the end times. People, I don't even need to think this. This is from the word. We know that People will be wicked to the core. There will be false prophets, um, people doing horrendous things right up to that moment. And I view it almost like a crescendo. Like It's like Satan is just, he's leading this symphony, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and it climaxes, and then boom, you get the clash of cymbals. You get a trumpet as Jesus returning. Um, so anyway, let's, let's carry on a little bit to the, the flood came and swept them all away. So that's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. They were unsuspecting when the flood came and swept them all away. They were blinded by that immorality that we're talking about, which is, I think, really interesting. Um, I, I used to think, and, and you might even think this yourself, well, I won't be unsuspecting. 
I'll know that the Lord is coming because I know it's going to come at an unsuspecting time. You know, that whole, like, suspect the, uh, un, uh, the, suspect the unsuspected, or un, expect the unexpected. That's right. Um, that was my thought. I was like, well, if I'm always expecting it at every moment, then the Lord can't come because I'm going to be one person that's suspecting it. And I think that's just so wrongheaded for a number of reasons. But one reason is I think every time you sin, which is hourly, you're implicitly showing that you're unaware and unvigilant, that you're not suspecting it. Because if you just just do a thought experiment with me for a second, if you knew somehow, it was revealed to you, that God was going to come in the next 30 seconds, would you dare to sin in the next 30 seconds, or even the next hour, or if it was like a day, I think I would just be coistered up somewhere praying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare sin because I wouldn't want to be caught sinning at the moment of his return. By virtue of us continuing to sin each moment, it's like just shouting to the world, I'm not expecting it at this moment. So I, I don't think we can ever say that we're expecting it, um, at least not consistently like, like I thought. Uh, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Very interesting. And this is, again, we can refer back to the days of Noah. There was presumably people going about life as usual when the the bond of nature and of society was just completely cleaved. And um, I'm going to get a little controversial here uh, because I think the official position of Shema is dispensational premillennialism. At least I think that's what um, Jerry, Rabbi Glenn, uh, adhere to. But, um, you know, on that view, uh, dispensational premillennialism, um, and also in the view of the Left Behind series, um, the famous or infamous <laughs> series, um, people will be taken up. And, and they get that idea from this. They, they will be raptured. Um, you remember the scene of like people driving a car and then they were raptured because they were a believer and then the car crashes, right? Um, that's, the, that's what we're thinking of here um, with dispensational premillennialism. And um, I, I actually got a lot of this from Brian Wolfmuller on YouTube. Um, he talks about this. The idea, that idea that it would be like something silent and mysterious, everyone just vanishes, that was popularized by a guy and invented by a guy uh, named John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. Um, he was in like a tent meeting, ran out of his tent, eureka moment. Like the, the church has to be raptured so that the Lord is free to do what he needs to do with Israel, right? So all the believers need to um, be raptured. And he drew from a couple verses, uh, which also taught well, a couple passages which talk about the rapture. And there's only really two others. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We're going to take them each in their turn, but this is where we get the idea of a rapture. First, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So, 
Paul is making it very clear that the dead will be raised, that much is known, but also that the believers, the, those living at that time, uh, won't have to die. You know, that was a big question in Thessalonians, like, what will happen to those people? They don't have to die before they can be um, resurrected, uh, raptured. They would just be taken up, which is kind of a neat, this is just a really cool idea. Um, and the way that it will happen, he describes it as a change. They'll be changed along with those who are dead. Um, now, now, we kind of get that picture from 1 Corinthians. Let's jump now to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trump trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, and, so we'll, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, uh, the New King James says, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so the pre-trib teaching and that of the Left Behind series is that the rapture will be silent, mysterious, you know, in the twinkling of an eye. Um, and then it's, it's like kind of self-contradicted by the, the voice of an archangel and a trumpet. So it's mysterious, but also like you're going to get this loud warning before it happens. So you run into some problems there. Um, the, it, we'll just continue right on to the next verse. It says, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Same idea. It's just repeated again. Um, so I want to bring us right back to that linchpin verse that this is like the days of Noah. And this is where I'm going to get a little bit controversial. The idea with um, premillennialism is that people will be taken up, and that's a good thing. It's good to be taken up, to, to be caught up. I want to flip that on its head. Um, so verse 39, if you recall, it says that in the days of Noah, everyone except for his family were swept up, were taken away. Um, to be taken away in the days of Noah was a bad thing. It was those who were here on earth who got to remain, who didn't die by the judgment of the waters. Um, those were the ones who stayed. So of these two people, the women at the mill, you want to be the one who's left behind. Um, the Left Behind series, right? Um, so I, I think that's a, probably a better view of that verse, of those couple of verses that... Um, we, we should read this with the idea that being caught up is a, is a bad thing. It's a form of judgment and death. Um, uh, another note from Carson on this point, a little bit tangential to this, is the two women work the hand mill. One normally operated um, the... So it says it was operated by two women. They were squatting on opposite side of, sides of the mill with each other. Each woman was turning... Um, oh, each woman, in turn, was pulling the stone around 180 degrees. So it, it took two people here. And the two people are typically sisters, mothers, daughters. 
it was women, or even household slaves. So the emphasis is that there's probably a close bond between these people. In the final days, there will be um, brother and sister that are just divided very suddenly. I think what, what we're supposed to take away from this, even more than the difference between being caught up and left behind, is the stark, like Jesus came to divide. Um, so that's the idea here. Any questions up until this point on just these few verses? Okay, then we're just going to keep keep going. Right now we're going to transition into the next like uh, subcategory of these verses, which is, I titled it, Stay Awake, because this is going to be the theme going forward. We went from Noah to stay awake. Verse 42, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The admonition here is to be vigilant, to always be awake and aware. Um, and it's not the first or last admonition to vigilance either. This is a repeated theme um, to basically try your best. And you might say, CJ, you just said, you know, sinning is us being unaware. So how can we be admonished to always stay aware? Stay aware. It'd be self-contradictory. And I think it's the same sort of admonition as it is um, when we're told don't sin. Like don't uh, be disobedient, honor thy father and mother. These are like impossible commands to keep, but you should still try your best to do them. Uh, try your best to be ready for the Lord's coming. Even though you don't know, it's impossible to know when it's coming, try your best. Um, verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. First off, it's really cool that Jesus compares us to the master of the house. Um, we're supposed to stay awake and be vigilant because we're the master of the house. It's on us. So that's a cool part of this um, analogy here. But the real emphasis is that however much we try to um, prepare for understanding the day and the hour, it, we're not going to do it. Instead, we need to stay awake all night because... Um, the, the foe, which would be Satan, or you know, the thief would really be God, Jesus coming in judgment, uh, that can happen at any hour, at any time. It's not like they had the police back in this day. You, you had to fend for yourself. So if you knew that someone was coming, you would have stayed up all night. Um, and it would have been a hard thing to do. It's hard to stay up all night, but uh, for the sake of the house, you do it. Verse 44 Therefore, you, must, uh, you, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is just repeating the same theme. We won't expect the hour. We won't know the day or the time, um, so be prepared always. Um, and that's a charge that's principally to the church. Um, I view in, in this that the house that we're masters of is the church, um, that we're supposed to be ever-expanding. Um, and we're going to get more into that in this, these next few verses. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So we go from being the master of the house to the servant. And it's really a powerful rhetorical tool 
Um, and I don't think it's a, a rhetorical question exactly, like who's to give them the food at the proper time. Um, the faithful servant. We, we get a few different characters in this. We get a faithful servant who's also wise, um, and then we get the master of the house, and in the next verse, we get, uh, or next few verses, we get a wicked servant. And these, I think, are pretty good analogies for those who are faithful in the church, their master being God, those who are unfaithful, those for whom there is a coming judgment, and then God himself, of course, being the, the master of the house. Um, giving food at the proper time, I view that as like spiritual nourishment. I don't think this is talking exclusively about church leaders. I think that would be a mistake. Um, Mark thirteen thirty seven implies that everyone should be watchful. Uh, it says, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So ev- this command goes out to everyone, not just the church leaders. Everyone should be giving their fellow servants in Christ their spiritual food. Be taken care of are uh, the least of these. Any questions there? All right. Then verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So that that servant who's um, generous with the food, who's keeping a watchful eye, um, that one's going to be blessed. And it tells us exactly how he's going to be blessed in the next verse. Truly I say to you, he will set himself, he will set him over all his possessions. So the master will put that servant in charge of all the other possessions, make him master of the other um, servants, of the house. And I think this is a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. I don't think it's going to be all monotonous. Uh, I don't think there's going to be just one level of heaven. I think Different people are going to have different roles, um, different possessions, heavenly treasures. Um, some are going to have uh, status over others. So what we do in this life, specifically with regard to anticipating the second coming, is going to have real ramifications for the world to come. Um, it, it almost seems like this could fit right into the Beatitudes. Blessed is he who is watchful the blessed servant. Um, and I think the watchful servant is going to be the one to whom Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful, wise servant. But now we get to look at the flip side of that coin, which is verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, wow, a lot to unpack. Let's start back at verse 48. Um, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the Lord will tarry in his job to come back. The hour is already set. It's just not known to us. Um, and so the Lord will come at the proper time. Uh, he's not going to be tardy. <laughs> um, he has impeccable timing. And we shouldn't worry ourselves about it. We shouldn't um, think like, oh, the Lord isn't coming at the right time because I've got this person who's doing horrible things to me. It's like, no, the Lord evidently wants those things or is allowing those things to happen for a reason. We shouldn't think that he's delaying or not doing his job. 
Um, so you, for your part, have to be vigilant and have to think he's not delaying. It's on us right now to be active. This isn't like a, a passive waiting. Uh, this is an active waiting where we have tasks. And we're a, a master of the house has tasks. So in the same way, we're supposed to be active in this, t- in this interim. Um, all right, verse 49. And he begins to beat his fellow servants uh, and eats and drinks with drunkards. Look at that contrast between the faithful and the wise servant. The, the wicked servant uh, doesn't love the church, doesn't feed his fellow brothers. Um, instead, he does what the ancient Israelis used to do, which is abandon or abuse the true body of Christ, the true body of believers, and then get in bed with pagan nations and their false gods. That's the equivalent of eating and drinking with the drunkards, um, which there's going to be a lot of in the end times. It it actually reminds me um, of people who, they go on sinning in life, and they'll say, like, well, you know, I'll come to Christ at a later date, at a later time. I kind of want my life the way it is right now. Um, They're thinking, well, the master, he's going to delay. Like, I can delay, too. (laughs) So it's a bad idea. You don't want to be... Uh, caught off guard with this sort of thing. Okay, is that much clear so far? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm talking in the new heaven and the new earth. I think in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be people of an elevated status. Um, for example, I think the apostles will be over us, you know, as a status. And we'll, it'll be like society today, just perfected. So it won't have any of the, like, sinful nature that corrupts a, a person's office or the position that they hold in that society. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I think ultimately we're going to be under the headship of the Lord and doing what the Lord wills. So it's going to be synchronistic in that way. But the, the question for those who are doing online is like, she, she thought in the millennial period there won't be anyone telling us what to do. Um, there won't be those, like, commanding figures. All right. Um, verse 50. So the master of that servant, God, will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know. So notice here that the master comes at the same time for both the faithful and wise servant and the wicked servant. The the timing is the same for both. It's equally unpredictable. Uh, the The juxtaposition between the two, though, is very, very stark, and it lies in their heart. Um, you can go all the way back to, like, Exodus, um, thinking about, like, how Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it's because fundamentally he was of a different nature. Just like the wicked servant is of a fundamentally different nature. Um, Moses had a soft heart to the Lord. The Lord was the same for both of them. It's us, we're that that unknown factor. Um, And then verse 51, so we're told that uh, the master of the house will cut him in pieces. Uh, If you go into the literal meaning of the text, it means to cut in half, which is it's crazy. It's, it's visceral language. 
Um, and then he's going to place him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very, very strong language, and I think that's intentional. It's meant to be scary and to put you on edge. Um, the teaching as a whole, like Paul says, is an encouraging one, is a comforting one. But this element of it for the wicked servant is very scary indeed. I think what's even scarier, though, is that Jesus is going to put, not only cut them up, but put them with the hypocrites. Isn't that, like, really interesting? The wicked servant is placed with the hypocrites. It's because his actions don't match uh, what his beliefs are supposed to be. He's a servant, um, but he's not acting like a servant. A true servant wouldn't do that sort of thing. Um, Dante's Inferno excellent read, the hypocrites are forced to wear coats that are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're lined with heavy lead, right? And then they're forced to bend over and struggle, walk in circles, that sort of thing. So that's what Dante came up with in his mind for the hypocrites. That's their punishment. And we have to believe that whatever the Lord devises is going to (laughs) be like infinitely worse because it's hell itself. Um, You do not want to be placed with the hypocrites in this final day. Um, I also want to draw a bit of a picture here. I want you to imagine that you're a school teacher and you need to excuse yourself because you need to go see the principal. And instead of being gone for the 10 minutes that you expected, you're only gone for five. And you come back into the classroom and there's one kid or a few kids who are bullying the other kids, specifically the weak kids, and they're humiliating them, um, torturing them, you would come in with righteous anger, right? You'd be like, you thought that you could get away with this because you thought I was just going to be gone. In, in the same way that they humiliated and beat those other students, you would humiliate and beat them, like dunce in the corner, like spank them, that sort of thing. That's exactly the attitude that we're dealing with here, um, the attitude of the Lord, where it's a righteous anger that seeks to make things right, and he's going to put his house in order, like any good master would. Um, Any questions about that or on what's happening in the two different uh, uh, parables of the houses? One where we're master and then one where we're a servant? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So his comment was twofold. The first part was that, you know, we become complacent. Uh, we go on sinning, and, we, and it's because we think, like, well, the Lord didn't come yesterday, and he's, he hasn't come yet today, probably won't come tomorrow, and so we, we keep on thinking that he's not going to come. And then we, in that, we become complacent. Um, that's like a critical error on our part, though, because uh, it's, like, it's like the gambler's fallacy. Have you guys heard of the gambler's fallacy? Where, like, okay, so let's say you're a gambler, and you're going to the casino, and you roll, let's say you want sixes, and you roll threes, and twos, and threes, and twos, and you do that, like, 40 times, and you don't get sixes. Now, what are your chances of getting sixes the next time? You'd think, oh, well, the, the gambler thinks, well, I haven't gotten it all these other times, so I, surely it's due to come, right? But really, it's not. It's still like, well, with one die, it would be one out of six. The chances of rolling a six are the same each time. So in the same way, we can't be like, well, the Lord didn't come, the Lord didn't come, so he must come tomorrow. Or the Lord didn't come, the Lord didn't come, so he's surely not going to come again. It's better not even to try to delve into the, the hidden God and his will. Um, and then the other part of your comment was that, you know, regarding the hierarchy, the Lord says, with those whom um, he trusts a little and are faithful, he's going to trust more. Um, and so that's sort of like on this earth, if we're trusted with a little and we prove that we're trustworthy, we're going to be trusted with more in heaven. And I think that principle does hold um, for sure. Any other questions? Yeah, or comments? Doers of the word. Yeah. Yeah. So her comment was, in order to be doers of the word, we need to actually be reading the word, knowing what it wants us to do. Which is a very astute observation. I do think there's like the the noble pagan, I think that was Aquinas, where someone who they don't know Christ, but they are doing good things because they're trying to be a good person. They're ch chasing some empty philosophy, but in that pursuit, they stumble by common grace on uh, true morality, and so they they are doing good things, but. Like, like Luther said, I just keep going back to Luther, he's so timeless. Like Luther said, even our good deeds are mortal sins. Like they, they could condemn us to death because they're tainted with original sin. It's a really neat idea. Like the scriptures tell us our good works are like filthy rags, right? I mean, the, if you want to get literal with it, it's talking about menstrual rags, used menstrual rags. That's a pretty gross image to, to paint on our good works that we think, oh, well, I did a good thing for the Lord. And I think it's because as soon as you think that, you've made it a bad thing. Um, sure, the, the Lord will still use it for good, but all of our good works are tainted, which is why we can't merit justification. It's a false doctrine. It's Pelagianism. It just doesn't work. Um, it's one of the few issues that I have uh, with the Catholic Church, because they think it's 
your, your good works merit an increase and a preservation of your justification, which initially happened by grace. But, you know, it, you sustain that justification through your good works, not just as fruits, but actually as, uh, as life-sustaining, um, which puts the cart before the horse. Um, you don't get a good tree by good fruits. You get good fruits from a good tree. You have to be changed before those works are truly good. Um, and any good work that we do do, it's Christ doing it in us. Um, okay, that's a bit of a, a tangent, though, but very good, very good question slash comment. Anything else? Okay, then I'm just going to kind of wrap us up because we did burn through all, um, all the verses. I want to go back to 1 Thessalonians 4.18 for application here. Paul says that this is an encouraging or comforting message. Um, This doctrine of the end times, the second coming, the parousia, that's a comforting thing for us. So if we ever find ourselves worried or frightened about the second coming, that's that's not of the Lord. Um, I think too many... Too many times we try to look for, like, who's the Antichrist? And we worry about that. Or, like, where's the next prophecy going to be fulfilled? And um, how will the Lord restore his church? Like, look at all these horrible things that are coming. And we stress about the Antichrist, the beast. And reading Revelation becomes, um, like, a burden because we're reading it with the wrong lens. We're reading it as though we were um, the condemned. And I think instead we should be reading it with great comfort and great joy because in almost every part of the Bible, you get law and gospel. And the law is what terrifies us, and it it draws us to the gospel. But once we're at the gospel, we should delight in the promises therein. Um, We should really take hold of those and let them be our comfort day in and day out. Um, It goes right back to the parasha teaching from last Saturday, just rest in the Lord. Um, I also want to reiterate here that the watchfulness that we're supposed to have as servants of this house um, is not passive. Like I said, we have duties, so we're supposed to be an active, living, breathing church. That's what it means to be a body. So here at Shema, we should all be taking on positions to serve our fellow brothers. Um, You mentioned that you went and fed people um, just from the excess that you had. You offered food, and that's like being the servant who's wise and faithful and feeding his fellow servants. Um, It's an act of watchfulness. And it's a watchfulness that tells others to be watchful. Um, And then lastly, I want to jump to a totally different verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.22. It says, If anyone who has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. And it's that last part, our Lord come. It's like it's like he was writing, 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 and then he just got filled with the Spirit. It was like, Lord, come. Like when he started thinking about the accursed, those who don't love the Lord. Like, oh, Lord, come. And um, I think that should be our heart cry, like every day. Um, we know that he won't tarry, but we still want earnestly for him to come and come soon. Um I don't know if you guys are keeping abreast on all the stuff that's happening with 
Roe v. Wade and then the RFFA in Michigan, but um, two developments happened today where um, the RFFA bill, this, this radical amendment, yeah, it's not a bill, it's an amendment, will be going on the ballot. So it went to the Supreme Court, and now I believe it's going to go um, on the ballot, which is horrible. And then there was another law that was passed way back when in Michigan, like 1938 or something like that, and it, it effectively made abortion illegal. Um, and so if Roe v. Wade, uh, well, when Roe v. Wade passed, if this RFFA bill amendment wasn't passed, we would have reverted back to that 1938 law. And it was, that, one, that law was just shot down. Um, so if in Michigan this RFFA amendment go, doesn't go through, we're still going to have something probably similar to Roe v. Wade in Michigan, which is really disheartening. Um, it's crushing. And when I got that news today from my buddy Jonah, it's funny because I was preparing for this like in the nights prior, but it really struck home with me only in that moment when I realized that abortion was going to be almost like an ever-present reality in Michigan. My heart was like, oh, our Lord, come. And uh, that should be our response to sin. Like, Lord, come now. Like, I want the sin to end. But that it's not just like you sitting there, like, our Lord, come. It's like, let's get up and do something. Let's go out and, like, advocate for the unborn. Um, that cry should, like, almost like spontaneously provoke in us um, a will to, to bring heaven to earth, as we say in the Lord's Prayer. Um, all right, anyway, uh, all that to say... Um, we want to treat each day as though the Lord could come on that day and treat it with the urgency that it deserves. So going to your neighbor, um, even if you don't know them particularly well, at least taking that first step and um, making yourself acquainted with them, showing them the love of Christ, and eventually working up to that, you know, you need to repent uh, and be saved. Um, with that, are there any questions uh, comments that you have to say about this or other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. this text here that we're talking about? It's both. It's definitely both. So remember in verses, um, let's go back to it in here. When it's talking about in the days of Noah, how those being swept up. So the question for those online is, is this talking about the rapture or the second coming, the prusia? And I, I think it's both. So you get in the first part of this section, you get pe uh, people being swept away um, you might think that that's people being raptured or, you know, judgment. Um, and then in the second part, it's talking about, um, like, the Lord will come like a thief in the night, right? And that's, I think, the, the second coming, when he comes. Um, and it's going to be like a coming in, in judgment. You get that? So first half is definitely rapture. Second half, I think, is the Lord's second coming. 
Yeah. Well, do you have a different? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I. Yeah, and and I lean. Um, well, I've I've got a few different leanings when it comes to the millennial period and everything, but I I tend to view it um, less like a very strict chronology. When I read these things, I think it's very loose. Like I I'm not willing to say that the rapture happens and then. Uh, the Lord's second coming, and then the resurrection of the dead. Like I, I can't speak too firmly on the timeline. I just don't think I have enough experience or knowledge to do that. Um, and I think the scriptures are sometimes, um, it's like really, really hard to interpret. Um, but it could be talking about uh, a different timeline from what I understand. It definitely could. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I've never heard it said like that. That's really good. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. That's that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one more comment on that, though, because I think there's, so the question was, we don't want, or the comment was, we don't want to be too dogmatic about these things. And I totally agree because, you know, because they're small, secondary, tertiary um, things. But um, there's like an opposite danger, too. So on the one hand, we don't want to be dogmatic about it. But on the other hand, we also don't want to say uh, they don't matter or we can't know the truth or we should just stop investigating. I know you would would heartily agree um, because on both sides you get like, relativism, where there is no real truth, we just don't really have any, uh, the scripture doesn't really speak on it, or, you know, we're being sectarian, and you can't come to my church if you're not a millennialist, like that sort of thing, you know, so I agree, but, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
change your mind on topics. You know, it, chances are if you believe the same thing that you believed 30, 40 years ago, you, you might be stagnant. Like, you might have to think more about things. It doesn't mean that you're wrong, of course. Um, you could have gotten, like, very lucky very early on, or you're just very wise early on in life. But um, the, what I find is when I investigate subjects, every time I come back to it, I get a little bit more honed in on what it is. And my views are constantly shifting closer and closer to the truth, I think. So... Mm. Yeah. 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 The comment was it, it almost feels deliberate that the Lord set up this tension with these two different poles of like I know definitely what it is. It, it's it pulls you in. It really does. And I've I've heard people say, well, I just want the Lord to make Himself known to me. Like atheists, just like come down, give me a vision, um, like uh, you know, like reveal yourself in a cloud. And I'm thinking to myself, like you can't, you can't love something like that, really. I mean, uh, I'm sh- I'm sure you could uh, if the Lord were to work it in that way. But for me, like in math class, I can see a proof, and it's like two plus two equals four, and it's just like right there, plain in front of me. It couldn't be more simple, more obvious, but I'm not in love with a math equation. Like, I need something with uh, personhood that has some ambiguity, that has mysteries that I'm supposed to, like, search out and, and come to know in a deeper and deeper way every day. Um, I wouldn't want a God that just, like, gives you the full truth and is like, there you go. Have fun with the rest of eternity. <laughs> every day what? Like Bereans, yeah. Search the scriptures like Bereans, yeah. Every day, I know I don't. And there's so many nooks and crannies. I, I firmly believe, you know, we'll be reading scriptures for all of eternity and and constantly be digging up more stuff. It's just such a deep well. God woos people, yeah. Well, where is church? He definitely woos his church. Yeah. Yeah. It would it would be well, I mean, this is clear from scriptures too. It would be too much if he revealed all of himself at once. Like that's too much glory for a man to see or or even touch, you know, <laughs> as that fateful servant carrying the Ark of the Covenant found out. You know, it's just too much to handle all at once. It's better to get it in micro doses. Um, and then develop a love relationship from that, constantly being romanced into a deeper relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a really astute observation. So he said in verse 39, it talks about how they were unaware until the flood came. Um, they didn't know what hit them until it hit them. And then they were fully aware. They, they knew what was going on. You know, I don't think there's going to be people in hell scratching their head like, how did I get here? Like, what, <laughs> what's going on with this? They're going to know. Everything will be revealed in its, its due time, um, just as it was in the day of Noah, um, returning to that common theme, as it was in the day, days of Noah. Um, yeah, it's a very good observation. Yeah. I never knew you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's that's all going to happen at the same time. So you're saying, it may, can I backtrack a little bit? Because there's going to be some people who, you know, Lord, but I was serving you. And he's going to say, no, I never knew you. Um, so they will be, it seems, unaware until the end. But I still think in that this is why I take all of the end times kind of in one big chunk, in one big pill, if you were, if you will. Uh, it's like, you know, they will know somewhere in that timeline, they'll come to that understanding, and then, you know, their fate will be sealed. So it still happens before the, you know, the tide hits, as it were. Um, very good. Um, anything else? All right. Well, we finished like right on time. Okay. Thank you guys for coming. Everyone online, have a blessed day. Appreciate it.